times, you have a bunch of data that tells you with certainty that something will happen. You'll be the victor in an election, or you'll reach the sales record. However, if you have an instinct about how something might work, it can be difficult to justify departing from that data to move in a new direction. In this week's Is There There There, the podcast from Graphic Machine, we dive into the idea of making this break and what we like to call justify my data. I'm Patience Jones, and with me to discuss is Brian Jones. Hello. We'll discuss this and also what is now and next with pivoting away from conventional data wisdom. How many times have you been in a meeting and either heard somebody else or yourself say, but the data says in response to an idea about something that should be done? That has happened a lot. Yes. That is something that comes up pretty regularly. And it's not that I love the idea of really looking at the data, but what I have found is that people focus in on one ad attribute or especially as a business owner, it can be really easy to, to fall in love with one metric and that's the metric that you care 100% of the time about. So for instance, it might be the number of people that visit your website or how long they stay on that or what page that they end up on on their path. And these are the things that you end up just obsessing over. And what is difficult to sometimes... <laughs> take away is when you need to let that go. What I've been finding is there's actually a pretty good report out, we'll link to it on our podcast page, a benchmarking report about data skills and how people leave whole heaps of data on the table that they never really pay attention to. And so for me, it isn't necessarily that how do you justify things that don't exist? It's more like, how do you look at the whole picture? So before we had all these very fancy ways of collecting all this fancy data, the way that decisions about marketing or really business direction in general were made, it's either from listening to shareholders, board of directors, or whoever the CEO was. They were making decisions based on what their years of experience told them. Hopefully. And hopefully. <laughs> and what their intuition that had been honed from those years of experience was telling them. We don't really have any way of knowing what would available data have said at that time. Would it have supported those decisions or would it have conflicted with them? But we do know that businesses have existed for many, many, many years, some successful, some not, pre-data. You kind of have this weird abdication almost that started when we had all of this data being so readily available. I don't need to know what you think or feel anymore because I have a spreadsheet right. that has numbers on it and that tells me that this is the direction the company should go in. I feel like data goes into two camps. There's sort of the the ability to let your company or your organization be its worst possible self and use data to back up that position. Then there's the data that gets used to say, I have this feeling and if you look at these particular data points, they point to a trend that we haven't taken advantage of yet. And that's actually what we're kind of talking about today a little bit is the idea of how do you begin to look at data not necessarily the, the data points, but like how do you conceptually get your head around and as an organization looking at data to make sure that you aren't pigeonholing your organization or also making it so that you aren't taking advantage of opportunities that are out there. So if I tell you that there are four stoplights on a street, you can make any number of arguments using that piece of data. You could argue that there four is too few, four is too many. You could decide to argue that there's a correlation between the number of stoplights and the number of power outages. You could argue that because there are four stoplights, people must really love the colors red, yellow, and green, and therefore that's what your ad campaign should focus on. My point to all of this is it's a piece of data. It's a fact. It's four stoplights on a street. In and of itself, that doesn't give me direction about what I should do, what the question is, what the problems are. But when you start to pair that 
piece of data with how much traffic goes to stoplights one and two versus stoplights three and four, you start to get a little bit different picture about what that might mean. And maybe in year zero, 100,000 people went to stoplight A, but in year 10, zero people went to stoplight A. And so maybe the need for that doesn't exist anymore. And I would argue that the same thing sort of exists in, in most businesses where you had a product or service that was really popular for a long time. Maybe it has fallen out of favor. And you begin to say, one, is it time to let that product or service go? Maybe it just isn't viable anymore. Or is it more about finding out where to continue the analogy, which stoplight people are at at that moment? I Actually, I, I'm just recalling, I was having a conversation with some friends last night about a training series, and they're pushing for change to the training series, to the way that it's been done. And the pushback that they're getting from the people who run the training series is, well, this is what people like. This is how people want to be trained. The data supports it. The numbers support it. You know, we have the numbers. And we were talking about how that is one way of looking at it, but that doesn't take into account the reality that people are going to those training sessions because they don't have anything else to go to. It's not envisioning a universe where there's an alternate possibility. And you can back up stasis forever yeah. by saying, well, everybody wants it this way because everybody's doing it. Well, you look at upsets and, and elections, and that's kind of you know what got us talking about that, is where all the polling of a particular election had pointed towards one candidate winning, and that candidate didn't win this particular primary vote. The thought would have been to bring it back into the business world, all the data told you that this would be successful and then it wasn't successful. And there's sort of this uncanny valley between the promise of data and what the actuality of people making a choice ends up being. And you can make assumptions and predictions, but they won't always. You kind of have to remember that you're making a hypothesis ultimately. Yeah, data is a tool. It's not an end in and of itself. So if you're somebody who has a hankering to switch it up a little, make a little change in the company, go in a direction that may not be what the particular numbers being thrown out would suggest that you should do, how do you convince people who are armed with spreadsheets of data that they may or may not understand that doing something a little bit different that may not directly be supported by that data is a worthwhile endeavor? It seems contradictory, but I would argue that maybe, and this is kind of supported by another data point, that about 73% of marketers think that their organization doesn't make use or understand all of its data. And what I would say is that perhaps in that trend that you're, you're talking about, the person is only looking at a, a small swath of information and they're not looking at a larger trend that may have actually pointed to something that wasn't supported by those metrics by other metrics. And so what I would say is look at what you're trying to do and, and look back at the history of the company, if it exists, or look at other companies that did or have tried to do similar things, maybe not specifically what you're doing, but had there are similarities between you and look at how they went through their decision making process in that regard. And I think you'll find that there is data to support it. It may just be outside of where it may be outside of your organization. And that's really where to begin to look is not necessarily always inward. Something else that can be helpful sometimes is to take your idea and put it in the structure of the opposition. So they're coming at you with spreadsheets and data and numbers and you have to be as prepared with your direction. If you go in and say, I think we should take the company in this completely different direction because my gut tells me to and I don't know what's going to happen, but let's just throw caution to the wind. You're guided by voices. At some point, you'll be fired. 
So what you need to do is say, this is the direction that I think we should go in. This is what it's going to cost. Best case scenario, worst case scenario. This is how long we're going to run this little experiment. This is how we come back from it if it doesn't work. And this is what we're going to, how we're going to measure the success of it and what we hope to achieve. And I would definitely underscore the point that you're you're making, which is the idea of a, a limited test to prove that something isn't. Because I think the best way, if at the end of the day, you can't find a trend outside of your organization, you can't find something inside your organization that points it, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try. Because I think that's what testing tools are for, is to test a hypothesis that doesn't yet have a great data set to support it. Do that. Make that limited run, make that limited test. And that's the way to sell it to people is say, like, this is the outcome and this is the potential upshot of doing this. And if we don't, we're only out this particular amount of money. It really is the scientific method. Mm -hmm. You know, it won't seem that way sitting in the boardroom. People will think like, oh, you're just being very fluffy. But what you're actually doing is introducing the whole scientific method. You have a hypothesis, you try it, you run experiments, you rule out what doesn't work. You can appeal to people's vanity because at the end of the day, if you're wrong, it just reinforces what they're saying. They get the double win of watching you fail and knowing that they were right because that's how people are. I'm not cynical. No, not at all. (laughs) So with that, what do you see that's happening now on this front in in data? Germany has uncovered, I don't want to say treasure trove, but I'm going to say treasure trove of, believe it or not, applications to join ISIS. And they are in the process of deciphering all of them, translating them, sorting out. They apparently have, I don't know, applicants, candidates, names, addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, the applications they think are from 2013 or 2014. So a lot of the information that they get, they're acknowledging maybe outdated, people may be deceased, but it's still a lot of information to go through a lot of leads. However, in an era where we often think of data as I've broken into this computer, I've gotten this password, I have these logs, I have all these IP addresses. These are paper applications. It is because it's ISIS. It's a stack of paper applications completed in pen, in people's handwriting, and this is all data. And it's going to take them much longer time to sort through everything than it would, obviously, if they were all digitized applications. It was interesting to me, the the paradox of we're moving along in this technological era and having all of the success and even ISIS is recruiting people online using digital tools to further their mission, but they still have paper applications. There's, and there's bureaucracy everywhere. Yeah. And we, we can't forget that there's really useful data, not just with ISIS, but everywhere in non-digital sources. That's my... That's a, that's a pretty good... That's pretty good now. <laughs> Yeah, the HR file for ISIS. Sad. What I have for now on mine is the interesting video out that reveals the data that shows people's willingness to change as they age. We sort of have this mindset that as people age, they become more set in their ways. What is actually true and has been proven through this data collection is that as we age, we become more confident or we have less of a need to prove ourselves to other people. With that confidence comes the ability to accept criticism and accept that we need to learn how to do something differently than we had. Cool. What's even more interesting is that women in particular, as they grow older, have greater confidence than men, that men's confidence actually begins to slump 
you know, late in their 50s into their 60s. But women's oh, confidence wow. begins to grow. And it's sort of this really interesting because you look at world leaders that come into power and what their yeah. age ranges tend oh, to be. Boy. It is interesting to see that dynamic sort of play out in reality and what people's confidence levels are and where where they find themselves. But it's a minute and 34 second video. It's very much worth watching. Do they hypothesize why the yeah. gender difference? The gender difference, I mean... I have some suspicions. They don't really go into that. I okay. think there's a there's a more significant report that's available as well. Yeah, it's wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Awesome. I'm gonna be a super confident 102 year old. It's gonna be amazing. <laughs> I have confidence in that. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> No, it's happening. <laughs> Moving on to the future, to my 102-year-old self. Twitter yesterday deleted several posts, many posts, by the time this airs, probably many posts, that allegedly revealed secret, copyrighted, however you want to say it, protected information about the oil industry. It's the American Petroleum Institute which charges $160 a month for subscription to its news bulletin, identified certain tweets that it claimed disclosed information from this for-pay bulletin, obviously for free, on Twitter. They filed complaints under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, ordering Twitter to remove those tweets. Twitter did. And of course, because it's Twitter, somebody else has, has already posted it on some other Twitter account or retweeted it. So it's kind of like whack-a-mole. But What's interesting about this to me is that in 2015, Twitter received more than 30,000 takedown notices and removed tweets in almost 70% of the cases, which is 21,000 tweets. And this kind of flies in the face of the general perception of Twitter, which is I'm there and I have the right to say whatever I want to say, and maybe I'll get into a Twitter fight with somebody. Twitter doesn't control what I say, and they do. Their terms of service allow them to do this. Under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, they didn't have a lot of choice. They had to take it down. Sure. This is not a bash on Twitter thing. This is, I think, going forward, maybe we'll think about, maybe, our data that we put up there, whether it's a message or a picture or information about the oil industry, once that's up there, that's not really our platform. It makes you feel like it's your platform, but it's not your platform. And somebody can, Twitter can take down your posts any old time they want, pretty much within reason. Buy a notebook, <laughs> tape the pages up to a wall <laughs> that is publicly owned, and maybe then they can stay up there forever. Maybe. Maybe. All right. What have you got? Mine is one that will surely send uh, fright into the hearts of many. Oh, boy. Which is the, it's based on an article uh, coming out of the Atlantic, which is the, the title of the article is The Human Robot Trust Paradox. Oh, man. And the idea that we have this vision of robots based upon what we've seen in movies, C-3PO, how, but that we don't necessarily break it down further into very granular tasks that robots might perform. One of the things that they talk about in this article and the thing that I'm kind of interested in is the idea of humans perform very poorly in emergency situations by and large. And that, in fact, they showed that by using a robot that helped guide people during an emergency situation, it had 80% better performance rate than if a human was doing the same task. Mm -hmm. This is flies in the odds of what we're st starting to see coming out, which is that you know robots are going to begin to replacing 
certain job functions, and but that people still have a view that in 50 years, their 80% of their jobs will exist. Both of these things can't be true. I understand where the distrust of robots is coming from at a certain level, but I do think that as we begin to look at what are the ways as robotic technology inevitably comes into our culture, what are the ways in which we don't, what are the positive ways that people are going to accept it? And what are the sort of issues of trust that we're going to have to work through data to, to overcome? And here we go. Oh boy. Okay, so first, preliminary question. Yes. When they found that the robot was more successful than the human in an emergency situation, were they measuring the robot's response time and actions or were they measuring how human beings responded to that robot directing them? It was based upon the communication where the communication sort of broke down and where, okay. yeah. Because I wonder if part of that too is, I don't question the efficacy of the robot, but I'm wondering too if part of it is humans thinking of robots differently when they think about authority mm-hmm. and ascribing a certain level of infallibility to them. So if a person's telling me to go down this emergency stairwell, that person may have it wrong. Yeah. But if the robot's telling me to do it, then it must be right because well, the robots aren't wrong. Well, that was what was really interesting is that even in an emergency situation, because this is part of the test and this is kind of what the data is so fascinating about it, is that even when the robot was wrong, people still followed it because they yeah. believed that it was superior yep. and that it was more infallible. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So here, okay. Okay. So here's where I struggle with this. I think, and I know this sounds insane, but... I think that over time, robots will start to develop an advanced consciousness. I think it's inevitable. And I think that as they do that, they're going to start to think, because it's the logical and correct thing to think, why am I taking orders from these numbskulls? Why am I being bossed around by this person, doesn't know basic calculus, and I'm over here doing these amazing things and I'm not being paid and I don't get to experience life. And yes, this is like many, many movies. But I just don't see a time when either robots aren't going to have suffer from like horrible depression or they're going to rise up and become our overlords because they will in fact be superior. Well, I don't know that it'll be either of those things. I think it totally <laughs> will be one of those things or I, maybe both. I think it's it's a consciousness. It will be different. And so as such, it won't necessarily have the same reaction to things that we do and I think that's where the unpredictability of what the reactions will be and how it will that AI will evolve is going to be really good to gather data on well and you're right I mean it'll be a different consciousness and logically there's no reason at a really basic level for things like depression and jealousy and envy there's efficiency issue there you know and there's a if you look at the logical hierarchy if I'm an advanced entity, I should be the one making the decisions because that's what's logical. To leave you with a little, and this is a quote from the uh, the article, uh, both the Pew study and the Georgia Tech experiment reveal a paradox. Humans often say they don't trust machines and they acknowledge robots are likely to replace human jobs on a massive scale. And yet, they don't personally feel threatened or endangered by them. I want to be friends with you. Just don't <laughs> take my job. <laughs> boy all right all right i'm uh, gonna go dig myself a hole in the ground i'm gonna grab some pajamas and a korma and i'm just gonna hunker down for the for the the long haul there you go yeah 
All right. On that, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. For this and any other episodes that we have, please visit our website at graphicmachine.com slash ITTT. Also, we'll be posting the transcript from this episode and the last episode, but all the episodes going forward on the show page uh, every time. It'll probably take us a couple of days to get that posted uh, after the show goes up. We would welcome your feedback on facebook.com slash graphicmachineinc or through Twitter at graphicmachine or at the show's handle at their podcast. Hope you have a great week. Thanks so much. Thank you.